and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It's the height of summer here in the Northern Hemisphere, and unfortunately, there is no end in sight for the global pandemic that has put an end to all the well-laid plans that triathletes had for seasons of successful racing. Virtual races seem to have had an enthusiastic audience for a little while, but my sense is that the luster may have come off and that fewer people are participating in those events than were when they were still new and the only game in town. Motivation can be a tricky thing in these times, and I know that for myself it took me a while to reset my focus and find a way to manage the lack of race goals with the desire to keep training no matter what. Through embracing new activities, being less strict with diet, and making more time for family than I otherwise would during the summer months, I've actually found a pretty good balance in my own life, one that has let me maintain my fitness and mental health, but that acknowledges that my training need not be as full-on in every aspect of my life as it might otherwise be when I have races on the calendar. In a different world, I would have been ramping up towards my A-race of Ironman Canada right now, and my availability would have been very different from what it is in the absence of that start line. I have consciously decided that at the end of the day, while it is a huge disappointment to not have that race, I'm at least seeing some benefits in ways that maybe I hadn't suspected, and yet I'm still managing to train and enjoying that training, perhaps even more so than if I had the race. On the show today, I continue my series on diversity in triathlon, or to put it more appropriately, the lack thereof. Linus Pagusera is a Filipino-American who lives in Chicago and came to the sport of triathlon pretty soon after he moved to this country. He's excelled at the sport and enjoys selling it to his friends, who are part of the same community. When I spoke to Linus, he had some great insights on triathlon from the perspective of an Asian-American and a first-generation immigrant. I think that you'll enjoy the conversation. Before that, though, I have a medical question to answer. In the summer, most of us like to ride our bikes. A lot. And in these hottest months of the year, the combination of long hours on the bike with sweat and pressure from the seat can lead to painful saddle sores for some. What are these, and how can they be treated, or better yet, prevented? Well, I give you the answers to that, coming up right now. Here on the TriDoc Podcast, I try to cover medical issues and ailments in a way that makes them easy to understand and hopefully gives insight on how to prevent and treat them so as to minimally impact your training and racing. Now, for the most part, these discussions are pretty vanilla in that I don't have to discuss too many disquieting details about anatomy or unsavory characteristics of disease. Well, I'm afraid that kind of all ends today with my response to a listener who wishes to remain anonymous for maybe obvious reasons on the subject of saddle sores. Now, I know that for one long-time listener, saddle sores will have a connotation that is more appropriate for the equine world, but for triathletes, these painful lesions can be a recurrent issue in the summertime during the height of bicycle riding season, and, well, without being too delicate, they're a royal pain in the butt. So what exactly is a saddle sore, how do they come about, and what can be done to prevent them, either from recurring or from arising in the first place? Well, to get to the bottom of this, and yes, I assure you that the pun was completely intended, and you can be sure that it won't be the last in this segment, we're going to first need to talk a little bit about the skin. As I've mentioned on previous episodes, the skin is the largest organ of the body and has many vital functions. 
most important of which it keeps all the good stuff in, if you will, and all the bad stuff out. It also regulates temperature uh, with its uh, inclusion of sweat glands. It protects us from the elements and also from minor injuries. It allows for the sensation of touch and even helps us express signs of our emotional and physical well-being to others around us. Think about the rosy glow of the cheeks or the rosy glow of the skin in somebody who looks and feels well. Uh, Think about the flush of the face when you receive praise or how the skin can appear pale in those who are ill. Well, to stay healthy, the skin requires protection and constant care. Humidity and pressure are two things that the skin is really pretty finicky about. If the skin is too dry or too wet, both are pretty bad. They can result in skin breakdown and in maceration of the skin, which impairs its ability to do the functions that it is supposed to be doing. In addition, pressure is pretty bad because it decreases local blood flow to that part of the skin, and this can result in impaired self-healing and eventually to the skin breaking down altogether. When we think of saddle sores, what we're describing are the effects of these kinds of adverse conditions, specifically increased humidity and pressure itself, where the skin comes into contact with the bicycle seat. Now, the most common places for saddle sores are the buttocks, your bum, and the perineum, or the area between the buttocks that is in contact with the nose of the saddle. During longer rides, sweat will make this area damp, and the continuous pressure against the saddle can easily lead to friction breakdown of the skin, what most think of and describe as chafing. Now, chafing is really just the first stage of a saddle sore, because chafed skin is injured skin that has lost the ability to protect itself and you beneath it. Now, in this scenario, bacteria that's normally found on the skin and is actually in pretty high concentrations in this area of the body can gain access to hair follicles. And the next phase of a saddle sore will soon begin if the chafing is not dealt with right away. In the second phase of a saddle sore, the hair follicle where bacteria have gained entry because of chafing becomes inflamed. So inflammatory cells get drawn to the hair follicle because of the invasion of this bacteria and the resultant swelling and the increase in blood flow to the area develops a condition that's known as folliculitis or inflammation of a hair follicle. The result here is that you have a tender, red, and raised area that often makes continued riding simply not possible. Now, this kind of folliculitis doesn't generally happen while you're on a ride. Rather, it's going to happen after the fact. So the chafing occurs. If you continue riding on that chafing, the bacterial invasion will occur. And then over a day or so, you then have the inflammatory process. And the next time you try to sit on the bike, that's when you notice the saddle sore. Now, in the worst kinds of cases... This inflammation can progress and the bacteria can multiply within the hair follicle to where you get a full-on infection, not only of the hair follicle, but potentially even of the skin surrounding it. And in some cases, you can even develop an abscess, which is a closed infection with a large amount of pus inside, in which case antibiotics can become necessary and in the worst possible scenarios, you might even need to get drainage of the area done so that the pus can be evacuated. Now, fortunately, progression to this last stage is pretty uncommon, but it can occur if you're not careful. So what then are the contributing factors to developing saddle sores? How can they be treated? And most importantly, what can you do to prevent them? Well, first and foremost, as I mentioned earlier, the two issues that are most important to the development of saddle sores are the pressure on the skin and the moisture in the area. 
So keeping the skin dry and relieving pressure points are going to go a long way to keeping this problem from developing. And if you've developed a saddle sore, it will also go a long way to keeping them from coming back. So if you can do this, keep those pressure points minimized, keep the dampness down to a bare minimum, then you're going to end up having many hours of saddle sore free riding. Now, obviously, the shape of the saddle is going to be important in determining where these pressure points exist, but there's no great evidence that any one shape of saddle is better than any other in terms of decreasing the risk of saddle sores. Now, I should point out at this point, though, there is a fair amount of low, maybe even moderate quality evidence that those seats that are split or seats that have a channel running along the nose of the saddle can have benefits both to men and women for various reasons because of the anatomy down in that region, but specifically in men when it comes to reproductive concerns. But that's another story for another time. So if you have questions about that, be sure to email me and I'd be happy to address it in another episode. For the sake of saddle sores, saddle type and shape is really a very much a personal preference, and it just might be that you have to experiment to find one that works best for you. Now, similarly, saddle stiffness is also very much a personal preference, and while you might think that the stiffer or firmer saddles might be more likely to cause saddle sores, that's probably not necessarily true. Certainly, there's no great evidence to support this notion. Most of the pro cyclists actually ride on very firm saddles, and saddle sores are not necessarily any more common in that group, even though they're putting in all those many more hours. The take-home message from this is find a saddle that you find most comfortable and use that one to ride on. Probably more important than the saddle shape or the saddle itself is really the fit of the bike. And it's going to be the fit of where the point of contact of the saddle is to you that is going to make the most difference in terms of getting or not getting saddle sores. You really want to avoid pressure points. You want to have the ability to be able to move back and forth on the saddle as you're riding to allow for different points of contact against the saddle during the course of your ride. So fit is likely the most important thing that affects saddle sores and definitely should be accentuated for anybody who's had this problem, certainly if it's something that happens more than once. Now on top of the saddle, we then need to consider elements that are related to the rider themselves. And the first thing that we need to consider are the shorts. A good pair of shorts, the ones that you're going to see advertised for hundreds of dollars, are often worth their weight in gold simply because they fit well, they have excellent quality materials, and they have a good quality chamois. And a good quality chamois is one that isn't too thick, that isn't overly padded, has excellent wicking and drying qualities, and is antibacterial. The best shorts also have flat stitching and avoid seams that come into contact with any part of the body that is also going to be in contact with the saddle because raised stitching and very thick chamois put too much material between you and the saddle and basically lend to the increased amount of pressure that is going to exist there. So you want thin shorts, thin chamois, flat seams, and flat stitching as much as possible in order to avoid chafing and the development of saddle sores. After we get past the shorts, we then need to consider elements on the skin. Now, chamois cream has been advocated for many, many years to help with saddle sores, and indeed it can, but you need to consider the fact that chamois cream can bid a 
be a bit of a double-edged sword. This is because while the application of chamois cream on the skin can definitely help with friction, it can also serve as a great barrier to keep moisture that you're sweating that will pass through the chamois cream and stay in the shorts and not actually be in contact with the skin. That barrier also helps retain bacteria up against the skin. So it can actually, in some cases, result in a worsening or compounding of the one of the things that can lead to saddle sores. You have to be a little bit careful with chamois cream. That being said, chamois cream can definitely go a long way to helping people, especially those who suffer from a lot of chafing, but then don't go on to get uh, saddle sores themselves. Now, another issue that can definitely increase the risk of the formation of saddle sores is shaving. Now, personal shaving in the area of the perineum, the area of where you're going to be sitting on the saddle, can uh, be something that a lot of people consider, but you need to remember that every time you shave the skin, you're actually running that razor blade along and encouraging the entrance of bacteria into that now freshly denuded and frankly injured skin. And so shaving has been seen over and over again to be a leading cause of saddle sores. So you have to consider if you are going to remove hair in that area, you probably want to use other types of techniques, deepilation in the form of creams that can deepilate, or you can use other types of perhaps less comfortable but more permanent solutions like electrolysis, laser, etc. But shaving itself, especially if you're someone who is prone to getting saddle sores, is something that needs to be discouraged. Okay, we've talked a lot about all the things you can do to try and prevent saddle sores from occurring uh, and how you can prevent them from reoccurring if you've been suffering from them. But what if you've got one? Uh, well, treating saddle sores isn't really all that difficult, but the manner in which it's done is going to depend a little bit depending on what phase you're at. So if you're just at the skin chafing stage, you get back from a ride, you pull off your shorts, and you've got that really angry, red, irritated skin... Uh, because you've had friction inside the shorts and you've now got this like chafe that, that has developed. There's not a whole lot that you really need to do for that. The most important thing is just keep the area exposed and dry as best possible. You want to wear loose fitting clothing over that area so that the skin isn't exposed to even more friction. And as much as possible, keep the area dry. Now, sometimes a barrier cream is helpful in this regard. If uh, the skin is actually pressed up against other skin and it's going to be continually rubbing, then Using some kind of cream like a zinc uh, oxide type cream that you find in the pharmacy, uh, sort of a diaper cream, that could be extremely useful. One thing to, to know about those barrier creams, though, is that they do trap moisture inside. And so they may not allow the skin to dry out and allow the chafing to heal completely. So as much as you can keep the skin completely uncovered, completely dry, that's going to be best for the healing to happen the quickest. But barrier creams are acceptable if uh, they're really necessary to allow you to get through the day without discomfort. Now, if you're past chafing, oh, and incidentally, if you have chafing, you can return to biking. There's no real time to take any time off. There's no real need to take any time off. The only issue is going to be is whether or not you can tolerate it and it's not causing you any discomfort. Now, if you're past the chafing and you're into the stage of folliculitis, at that point, you're going to have a raised, red, angry, very, very tender spot. And at this point, cycling is likely not going to be possible. It's just going to be too uncomfortable. And that's okay, because a couple of days off from the bike is going to be part and parcel of getting this under control and allowing it to heal. And during that time, again, keeping the skin exposed and dry is going to be very important. And in between, you can be doing things like applying warm compresses, which allows skin pores to open up 
a little bit and allows for any bacteria that might be in and around that hair follicle to drain out before any infection can really take root. Similarly, Epsom salt baths can be quite helpful. Soaking the area uh, in a salt-containing solution can actually get out ahead of any infection before it takes root and allow for the skin to open up and allow for uh, a little more drainage in that area. And then once out of the bath, make sure the area, again, very dry and uh, exposed to air as much as possible. And after a couple of days, you should see improvement and hopefully be able to return to biking, assuming you've addressed whatever the issue was that got you uh, into trouble in the first place. Now, if you are past the folliculitis and into a full-blown abscess, well, at that point, unfortunately, the only solution there is going to be to see your physician because you're probably going to need antibiotics. And worst case scenario, you might even need drainage uh, to incise the abscess and remove the pus before the healing can really begin. And at this point, you're looking at probably five to maybe even 10 days off the bike until everything heals up. And um, at that point, you can return using all of the things that we mentioned before. So again, good saddle, good bike fit, using good shorts, good quality shorts with a good chamois, potentially using a chamois cream, avoiding shaving, shower immediately after rides, keep the skin dry and clean, and hopefully you shouldn't have any problem. Now, there's no question saddle sores can be painful, but there's really no reason you can't get on top of them and keep riding. Then you can just be chafed about being passed by your friends on that climb again. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Linus Pagusera moved from the Philippines 13 years ago. When he first arrived, he fulfilled the American dream of making sure that no crumbs were left on his plate, and that was reflected on the scale. But he'd always liked cycling, so he got a mountain bike and started working out to train for a hike to Machu Picchu that he was planning, and when he came back, was dragged into doing the Chicago Sprint Triathlon race, with only three weeks to train. But in doing that race, he was bitten by the triathlon bug, and he made his way all the way from the back of the pack to being the overall winner of the same race some nine years later, and followed that up by doing two world championship races, one at the ITU Grand Final and the other one at the 70.3 World Championships in Nice in two consecutive weekends. He loves to travel for his races, and he loves to sample foods wherever he goes, especially chocolate. But today, he's here on the TriDoc Podcast to talk about his experience as an Asian American in a sport that remains really persistently very white and with a lack of diversity. Linus, thank you so much for joining me today on the TriDoc Podcast. Thanks for having me, Doc. So, Linus, uh, tell me about your history. I mean, uh, that's a, an interesting story about coming back from Machu Picchu and then uh, getting into triathlon with only three weeks to go. What was that like? It was it was actually kind of very funny because I did plan for that trip as like a major birthday trip for me. But prior to it, when I was doing the research, I realized like, you know what, I really need to train for this because it is fairly physical. And oddly, the distance is 26 miles altogether. Although, when I did the training, I didn't even do any triathlon or running training before it. What I actually did was I got into that workout program, P90X. I'm not, obviously, you've heard of it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and then, before that, I was a, a few stones heavier than I am now. And when I came back from Machu Picchu, I, I did manage to like drop the weight. I felt pretty good and healthy throughout the entire time. And then when I came back... It was summertime, 
got to my own mountain biking gig again. And Chicago Triathlon falls like mostly towards the end of August. And a few of my friends, or good friends of mine still now, is uh, dragged me to sign up for the sprint triathlon. I'm like, how do you exactly do this? And at that point, uh, Fleet Feet, the local running store we have here, were having wetsuit rentals at their local beach. You pay five bucks, you can rent the wetsuit, and water's pretty cold, so that's what we did. So rent the wetsuit, and that was it. And next thing I know, okay, we're swimming in the lake, so I need a wetsuit because it's cold. And I had a blast. I rode my mountain bike, rode my mountain bike through the race. The thing was so undergeared that I'd be be spinning like a like a like a hamster uh, like a like a hamster in a wheel. Because Lakeshore Drive, if you haven't been here, it's a bit has a bit of an incline and decline. And every time you go on the other side, you just keep on spinning like crazy. And it pretty much just built up from there. So did a couple of races. And slowly made my way up to doing Olympic tries and met a few more friends through the same circle again. And eventually we became this group of uh, crazians or crazy Asians, so to say. And we realized that there's actually a fair amount of uh, Asian endurance athletes in the area. But although mo- most of the crowds are not within my age range yet, at that point in time, in a way, this was 10 years ago we're talking about. And now it has kind of grown, but most of my friends that are really close to me doing triathlons all the way to like Ironman level are are a tad older than me. Mostly, they're at least in their 40s who have stable lifestyles, who have stable careers, got very supportive families. So that was pretty much the start of it. And one of our friends, my still still very good friend of mine, Ernest, started this group on Facebook called care uh, chicago area uh, chicago asian running endurance and it was a pretty we had a pretty good group going on mostly filipinos because me coming from the philippines and most of my friends too were coming from the philippines and that was the inception of that idea and you're right every time we went to a race it it's mostly pretty caucasian in general and you see this whole bunch of us Asians suddenly kind of sticking out of nowhere. And we are kind of into the toys and the gear. So <laughs> that's another thing that kind of makes us stick out. But eventually we learned that we're, it's not all for show, but when you can't go, it's really just nothing too. Yeah. Now it's interesting to me because uh, triathlon has uh, really expanded into Asia, uh, Ironman Japan, Ironman Malaysia, there's a race in the Philippines, and those races are very popular and they do quite well. Um, oh my God, huge, yeah. huge. I've only been to one race in the Philippines two years ago. That's when I qualified for South Africa. And the festivities, everything from start to finish, it's like out of the out of this world, like over the top. Yeah, it uh, looks it looks like a great time. Lance Watson, who's been on the podcast before, he uh, he was there this past year, and he was sending all kinds of video back on his Instagram, and it just looked like such a blast. So, I mean, very popular, clearly across Asia. Uh, what's your sense uh, as to why it's not more popular amongst Asian Americans? Personally, for me, uh, I always, I mean. Eventually, you realize that the sport is actually very elitist to it, in, in its very nature. Uh, it's a 
the entry to it is a bit steep, I guess, when it comes to equipment for one. It's a really big uh, and heavy investment in terms of that aspect. And the other thing would be for personally for us immigrants, first generation immigrants in general, you don't, the idea initially is you don't come here to play. You come to this side of the world for like a generally better life, a more financially stable career, so to say. And then sports for us coming, coming again, like I said, from the Philippines, sports is, it's, it's, it's fluff. You, you don't, you can't make a career out of sports for the most part, especially endurance and individual sports, because we are, Philippines, oddly, is very, very into basketball. And unfortunately, me, I didn't think I never had that hand-eye coordination to play the sport. <laughs> but I did play a little bit of tennis and badminton growing up. So that's what I kind of leaned into. And I think with most uh, sports that, that require a lot of uh, financial investment like triathlon, it's also a matter of uh, the psyche of where are you getting to a certain sport. And the, I think one of the reasons why it became so popular, even in the Philippines, it's more of a, it goes in waves, right? And now there's this wave people are riding on that it's a cool sport. You get to ride cool bikes. You get to have all the cool gear. And suddenly, when all that dies down, where else are you going to go? What else are you going to do? And it, it's, it's a matter of also sustainability. You get into it, and you have to figure out your intentions as to why you, you get into it first, anyway. Because personally, for me, it was obviously with a little bit of peer pressure going into it. And eventually down the line, you realize you have to find the why into why you're doing a certain support. And given that I work in hospitality, which I always say is hostility to some degree, given the <laughs> insane hours that we work in, triathlon, running in general, swimming, biking, I know it's a solo sport. It can feel very lonely training, training for it, training for the races. We pretty much only just, you can only do a number of it every year. It is lonely, but to some degree, but it also is fulfilling to me that there's one aspect of my day that I can control, which is the training part. And despite whatever that happens through the rest of the year or the day, I succeeded at something, which is, doing something for me i guess and i wouldn't i didn't rely on certain validation of peers or competitors or friends like playing a team sport so i guess that's one of the reasons why yeah i want to go back to what you said about uh you know for immigrants you come here and you're sort of have a you have a higher calling to you know make a better life for yourself and doing sports is maybe not should you know would be almost seen as betraying that 
if you will. I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, rewording what you said. And I, I look back at, uh, you know, the beginning of the last century, uh, you know, the waves of immigrants that came from Europe, uh, be they Irish or German. Um, when they arrived, uh, one of the things they wanted to do was uh, really assimilate themselves into American culture. And one of the things they did was to do that was to embrace the sport that was being played, which was baseball at the time. And and so all the youth would take up baseball. And even though they were immigrants and hardworking, baseball became a way of uh, Americanizing themselves. Is that something that uh, immigrants still view as a way of Americanizing themselves, picking up a sport that is that seems American? I think it actually is because, I mean... I think personally for me coming from the Philippines, basketball is so popular that most of my friends back home are way better at basketball trivia than me that who actually live here, who, can, who actually have access to basketball games. But it also will also depend on certain inclinations. And for me, I found my way into a certain sense of belonging in a community through triathlon. And oddly enough, I thought I thought it'd be, I thought it'd be like just a very local thing with us here in the Midwest Chicago land area. And I've been around the world and been pretty welcomed by strangers as well as now friends dear dear to me through triathlon. And the hard there, I think personally, the really the hardest part about it really is like among everything else, balancing work. And having family at the same time, and where do you actually put supporting in between? And most of life now has gone very, very fast-paced. That we all ride in this in this wave of what's popular, and we can we can see down the line how it affects you personally, yeah. how it affects finances, how it affects your friends, how it affects your family. And most of my friends that are into triathlon are a bit older, but you have these kids that were born and raised here, second generation immigrants pretty much, who have these certain inclinations now to different sports other than basketball or baseball or football, I guess. And is, do you think triathlon would be more welcoming if it was more diverse, if it represented, if, if they saw more faces that looked like them? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because uh, here, here's the other thing that I realized. So when I when I did Chicago Triathlon last year, there were, on the sprint, the first I was first. The second place guy is this guy. I can't remember his name. I should look him up. Uh, he's from California, and he he was born or he also migrated here, I guess. But he's from originally from Nigeria. So it's also it's a it's a welcoming thing to actually have somebody who does the sport other than normal Caucasians that you'll see. Because sometimes I feel that through the years, you know, like so we come in waves, you got this big crowd initially, and then suddenly only a few of you are left. And oddly enough, ten years later I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm one of those who are still left and it's funny because i 
I don't tend to stick out. I, I would believe so. And then but I realize when I go to certain places or certain small races that I can stick out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Have you experienced any, you know, racism in triathlon? Have you, uh, have you heard anything said or have you, you know, felt anything at any of the races? Not necessarily to an extent that it was directly like an attack. It's more of like just a look of uh, what makes you or just maybe a feeling that I would get sometimes of uh, what makes you kind of feel or think that you belong here. And in the trajectory lately, I've kind of managed to get my way up like the local races on the podiums and I'd be the one who like stick out because obviously I'm the only one who looks a bit different up there. So I directly know. So it's more subtle. It's, 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 it's really subtle. It's really subtle. It's not blatantly said or it's not, you know, nobody shouts it out loud. It's, you, you just have that feeling of a bit of an inferiority inferiority uh, complex sometimes. Would you like to see triathlon do something to become more diverse? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think in a certain way that they've tried, they've tried uh, reaching out to more women to be doing sports altogether. I think it's a debatable topic, but when I you, when you do races in Asia. Uh, one I observed in the Philippines is that to promote local talent, so actually get on the top spot because mostly most of the pro winners are are the Aussies, the Kiwis, or the Europeans, Americans that live close to the area. But they do have a local elite version of it, so they put up a different podium for it. Some some people think it's kind of laughable. It, it's like giving a you know, a seventh place trophy, the way some people would call it, but we have to pave a way to make it accessible to everybody. You know, I, not everybody can afford to join this this uh, this golf club, or uh, what do you call that? Yeah, this this uh, this resort or this this spa or this country club. I mean, and it, it, it it's a it's a hard thing because even coming from the islands, we are surrounded by all this water. But I know so many people who can't even swim. It's, it's a funny matter. You live around water and you're afraid of water and you can't swim. So how is that? Because initially, we don't really have access to pools. There are, certain, there are a few pools in the air or in the city, but it's so expensive to get there. So there's already that cost barrier from getting you through the support. And if the, if the sport wants to get better, wants to tap into certain populations and wants to expand, there has to be certain ways of reaching out to uh, those groups. I'm not exactly sure how, or I'm not exactly sure in what ways, but maybe you can get like tiered pricing when it comes to registrations for races. Or I, I, honestly, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this even as to how to uh, do that. I mean, clearly seeing a pro, 
that you know was Asian American would help. I, I'm not aware of any. Uh, that would definitely help, I would think. Well, I know of one. Now he's mentioned that. I know of one. Uh, his name's Arlen. He. I'm not sure if he if he renewed his pro card recently, but he, he used to race a good bunch before. And he's, I, I'm not sure, like I said, if he did. He's a bit older now, too. But there's also that lack of, uh, there's also that lack of, of focus, I guess, or lack of attention when it comes to the sphere. So I was just talking to a friend about this. The problem, it's not a problem, but us Asians are kind of in a safe spot in a certain way that we are considered a model minority, so they say they call this. I don't know how that has kind of come about, but I think, generally speaking, our media and our culture are so engrossed in Western culture, and we are considered to be allies, so to say, and we are the safe ones, so we try to do our part we try to work really hard, contribute whatever we can to this society. And in the end, we somewhat just hide too in the shadows of, of those more superior to us because this is a safe spot for us. And also because that's the case, light never gets uh, shined down upon us. We just keep on getting tucked away and hidden in the shadows, so to say. Yeah. I just want to finish with one last question, and that is, uh, what's your understanding of uh, the popularity of triathlon amongst Asian women? Ooh, I actually have a lot of friends, women friends, who are into, generally speaking, endurance sports, mostly running in general. The hard part is really, one, equipment-wise, that's a given. Two, there's certain comfort with regards to one swimming in open bo- open bodies of water. The other thing is riding bikes at faster speeds. And third is doing all these three things combined, doing running. You're out in the sun for way longer. And oddly enough, we are a bit fond and a bit. It's kind of laughable at some days, but we 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 are so into skincare, which is a good thing, I guess. And nobody really wants to get too tanned or too dark. So I think that's another barrier because in the Philippines even, you'd only see really a handful of women who's wanting to do it, mostly because nobody wants to get baked. It's so hot. Interesting. Yeah, so a lot of cultural sort of dynamics, uh, both for men and women, uh, but definitely different kinds of dynamics for the different sexes. Yeah, yeah de- definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, do you think that there's, uh, anything specific that, you know, the triathlon governing bodies could do to try and reach out to the Asian community and get more Asian Americans involved? You know what? That's a, that's a big work in progress as most things. I think the, one of the, one of the good ways to be doing it is really to, Instill, instill in the younger generations, especially that those are were born and raised here, that there's there can be bigger things other than just working in general. Uh, I've come to that re- realization personally myself, and there there are other things that you can find more fulfilling than just 
putting more plaques in your walls sometimes. And, you know, the world's a, it's a big world out there. I mean, we, we can't be relying on, on our accolades all the time to be recognized that you know, at the end of the day, we're also human. And I, I think it's a matter of also highlighting, highlighting these uh, achievements that, you know, Asian Americans have accomplished doing a certain sport like triathlon because it's still very niche, very elitist to some degree. And, you know, it's really just embracing changes and, you know, diversity altogether. It's a, it's a happy place. I am so happy I found this sport that I can go anywhere else and always find a welcoming home and a welcoming face all throughout. And I can't be really any more thankful than that. I've, I've found my way just doing this sport. Well, that uh, tremendous sentiment, and I think an excellent way to end. Linus uh, Pegusara is an Asian-American, uh, originally from the Philippines. He's been living in Chicago uh, for the last 13 years and is a, a successful triathlete, winning uh, several local triathlons, making his way to the World Championships at both the ITU and the WTC uh, in the 70.3 distance. Linus, uh, a member, I should mention, of the Cupcake Cartel, the same team team as I am. So, uh, Linus, great to have you here. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast to talk about this really important uh, subject. Thanks very much, Doc. We appreciate that. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. If you're still listening, you may be interested to know that I've changed my podcast host. And as a result, the website for the podcast has been updated. You can find archives of all of the shows, as well as a new handy collections feature where I've grouped shows by category at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, and I'll take it into consideration. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tridoccoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question to answer, and I'll continue my exploration into how we can make triathlon more diverse with an interview with Nat Heath, an Aboriginal athlete in Australia. He has some great insights into the sport from the perspective of a minority within his own country, one that has not always been so kind to its native peoples. Until then, train hard, train healthy.